dive deep into it or not. And you, you don't, we're happy. But nobody can ever take away your love and your wisdom. All right. Uh, uh, I think one of the, or one of the biggest questions that I had was, what was it like growing up, you know, with your with your mom and your your dad, coming from, like the four agreements, just from that that point of view. Like, how was that being raised in in an environment around? Well, I can say those I, concepts. Uh, I guess I'm blessed being the eldest, so I remember a lot of my the, my dad's stages during his own journey. Uh -huh. I remember Dr. Miguel Ruiz. I remember Apprentice Miguel Ruiz. I remember Don Miguel Ruiz and the version he made came out. I saw all the different styles uh -huh. and the steps, you know, like the, the way the, par the parenting style of my father when he was Dr. Miguel Ruiz. It was straight A's, straight A's. But my grandmother and my mother, of course. And then uh, my father had his aha moment somewhere like around when I was young. And then he began to apprentice with my grandmother. So he had his medical practice uh, during the week and in the weekends he would go and apprentice with my grandmother. Then little by little, you know, he started putting more attention to the family tradition. And he made the decision to let go of being a medical doctor and a surgeon to be exact. And in that as a surgeon, he let go of the practice and went full, full scale on the whole, the whole family tradition, which you can already imagine that being such a huge shift. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, my, my mom and dad, what well, that cost in their marriage, of course. Um, divorce. But, <laughs> Get but, it. Um, but uh, because nothing is, uh, is promised, you know. And uh, we were three boys at the time, but my father went full force with the tradition. And one of the things he wanted to do was to clean up the tradition from a lot of, um, you guys call it um, superstition. Mm. So at that point, my grandmother was his teacher, and my her father, her father, Don Leonardo, and he practiced and practiced, and then he began to understand it in his own language, in his own way of seeing things, and he began to take out a lot of that superstition and leave what he would call common sense. And as you can say, that's where the four agreements were born. You know, they can say that it's been there in the family tradition for many, many years, like uh, generations from Don Madre Sarita, who is his mother, who really is the, the, the figurehead, the spiritual head of the family. Mm -hmm. People would say that I'm walking my father's footsteps, but that's incorrect. All my father and I, my brother, all follow my grandmother's footsteps. It's her vision to share the tradition with a whole community. Because her father, Don Leonardo, and her grandfather, Don Ezequiel, who taught the tradition, but taught it to a very few people, just a few people in the family, and a few people who were interested outside the family. The tradition was shared for, or, for us, an oral tradition, sharing stories. And thus, those are the stories that reached my father. And he understood it, but once he began to practice them and engage them, he saw that a lot of the superstition that surrounded them kind of uh, didn't let people see it. So he took it all out, put it in a language we all could understand. And that's where the four agreements comes in. And that was during my apprenticeship time, as you can say, in my late teens and early twenties, 
So when the book came out in November of 1997, and my dad gave me a copy and I read it and I put it down after my that third chapter because it was my dad telling me what to do all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, how did you rebel? <laughs> It's a tradition in the family to rebel against a tradition, it turns out. You know, the, the thing about all tradition is that it gets close back as living memory. So, Don Ezequiel, my grandma's grandfather, who lived to be 116 years of age, wow. he, practiced, he practiced it the way one would imagine old Mexico to be. You know, the trickster, the, the one with a big hat, he was that kind of guy. And his son, a very disciplined man, he became a soldier as a, as a federal soldier in the Mexican army, but he was also a musician, so he became a, a band leader, and he found a way to teach the tradition through not only stories, but through music, mm. and he did yeah. a lot of that concept through that music and paying attention all that kind of thing. Then his daughter, Maria Sarita, my grandmother, taught it in a way that was healing, you know, she was a healer, and she gave sermons, and she had the vision to share the tradition with everyone, so she taught it in her own unique way. So when my father came around, you can say that transition was happening. And my grandmother always said to us that each one will, that's all the tradition becomes alive when life teaches it to us. Mm. Right. If we practice it exactly like the way she did it, or when Ezekiel did it, or even the way my father did it, then we're killing the tradition because we're not letting life be the teacher. So we learn it through our everyday life. So when I was young, when I was in my teens and early 20s, what does that have to do with my life? So my father rebelled against it through medicine, my grandmother rebelled against it, well through family and all that, then not through being a soldier, but ultimately life begins to be our teacher. For me in my case, I graduated from college, the bubble burst, I'm no longer working for grades, I'm working for life and I'm experiencing relationships and all of a sudden, I began to understand my grandmother's teachings and my father's teachings as something relevant to my life. It, it stopped being something in a history book or something in a museum. It became something practical, which is exactly what my father wanted to, in the first place to teach us in a practical way. Because when he first started, he taught that all symbology, that old tradition, and as he practiced, it morphed, it changed, it evolved into a language that we can all understand. And in fact, we're here because of that yeah. yeah so so that you can say that we rebelled wanting to engage life wanting to engage our generation you know and then we saw how the tradition became relevant in our life how it helped us in <clears> our <throat> own life how it helped me heal from my own wounds the mm. conditional love left in my life and i developed my own voice just like my brother did just like my father did just like my grandmother did Life became the teacher. It's so funny. We've been <clears throat> we've been talking about that a lot recently with um, different uh, people that we've either been interviewed or just lessons in life. How the lessons will stay the same, and I think this is important for a lot of people to know. The lessons stay the same, but it's our life experience that shows up when it needs to show up for us to learn that lesson or to be able to apply it. Yes. So it's just like as long as we're present and paying attention to everything then we you know hopefully we pick it up the first time some of us may take a little bit longer <laughs> it's like oh yeah i do remember that <laughs> at least you're honest <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, no, so that's a great point. I appreciate that share. So I, I was listening to you recently um, about you changing your whole life, not drinking, you're running and all of that. You look amazing. So can you, oh, you. Can you step on and step into that a little bit with us? Sure, sure. Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's all like an onion, you know. For example, we, I've been going to Teotihuacan, uh, my dad's quintessential uh, teaching. Like I would say that the biggest gift that my father has left in my life has been the practices we to go to Teotihuacan rather than the Four Agreements. The Four Agreements are incredible instruments, but yeah. his journey is there. And every time I've gone, it's like peeling off a layer of the onion, a layer of the onion. You know, all of a sudden you realize you're not, you're in your teens, you're not in your 20s, you're not in your 30s. And uh, for me, you can say the beginning of that peeling of the layer was when I I wasn't who I thought I was. You know, ego creates, the fun. it's easy to see the function of ego as a function rather than just a conceptual. To me, the ego is creating an idea that by which we model ourselves and ego is keeping that illusion alive. That's that's what the function of ego is. So when I realized that I am not that image that I project myself to be, mm. that I began to heal myself first emotionally with my you know, healing from all the wounds that I had in my life, all my resentments, all that stuff, and I began to do the work. A, a dear teacher of mine once taught me that the key to enlightenment is effort. And then from my experiences, discipline is remembering to apply that effort every day mm. and success is following through that's that's the teaching and that's life to teach me afterwards discipline is remembering to apply that effort every day and effort just simply is the energy the ability we have to use the energy that animates this body that animates this mind to manifest something that's what allows us to create things in life so it starts there i began to heal my own relationship with myself then i began to apply that with my wife and my kids and then little by little you know I wasn't really taking care of myself physically or emotionally whatever well I was taking care of myself emotionally but not physically I kind of put that on the back burner relying on my 30s to <laughs> that's you know to relying on youth that's what we did in our t- teens and 20s right uh-huh. why not 30s and then as I practiced that and I began to get better at developing my own discipline with things. I began to apply that with running. And it all started because I, I goaded a couple of friends of mine to do a race called Tough Mudder. They did it. Oh, that's tough. I was, already, I was recovering from an injury. Like uh, uh, two years prior, I had injured both ankles because I was sitting exactly in this position that I'm in right now, a pretzel. I actually unfolded myself, but uh, I was in that position for way too long, working on a computer exactly like this. I got up and both legs were asleep. Mm. Uh, The nerve had been pinched just enough that when I stood up, I just felt two sticks underneath me and I crumbled to the floor. And luckily I didn't break anything, especially the noggin, but I definitely uh, severely uh, twisted both ankles because of the angle the way I felt. So I went to physical therapy, I went through all this stuff, and I had to relearn how to walk, I had to relearn how to do all these things. So when I was going my friends, I was still going through that whole process. So when they did it, I signed up that day, because when you finish that race, you have this window where you can open, that you can register, so I registered, Uh and I began to run to prepare myself for this race. 
and when I first started, I, I was only able to run a mile or two. So little by little, you know, I used to crutch with my headphones. I would run one song, walk one song, run one song, and I would do that pattern until I added two songs running, one walking, two songs, and then little by little, I expanded that until I reached three miles and four miles, and then I was crossing thresholds that my mind said I couldn't cross, and I enjoyed crossing those thres- thresholds, proving my self-doubt wrong, or believe yeah. proving my yeah. mind wrong. <clears throat> and then I ran that race, and I enjoyed it. I <laughs> liked it. So I continued to sign up for races without the obstacles. <laughs> since then, I've been running, and I just, there's this joy about it, you know? I actually, the races are the excuse to train. Mm. I, it's the, because I, I once ran a race where I didn't really train, and I saw the consequence of not training. Mm-hmm. So it pushed me, you know, this is, what else can I do? That, that, that mantra, like, what else can I do? And little by little, I began to apply that. Uh, the same thing I learned from healing from my own wounds, I applied it something physically where it became, where I can meditate when I run. You know, the, in the first five miles, I can hear all my voices, all that, all that uh, muck in my mind, very loudly. Then on mile five, mile six, it's fascinating to see it subside where I no long, I'm no longer thinking. And for about five to eight miles, there's no thoughts. Mm. I'm just running. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of my environment. I'm aware of my body. I don't run with headphones, so there's no music. It's just me. And then my mind comes back towards the end of the run, trying to help me. It comes back as my ally. It comes back helping me to run the last three miles. I learned how to apply my discipline. And I say this because uh, a year, a little over a year ago, maybe a year or three months ago, I woke up, I was waking up with heart palpitations in my heart. And, uh, luckily enough, I was able to cancel things out. I knew I had sleep apnea. And my dad's heart attack, when he suffered his heart attack at, at the age of 49, was between the hours of three and four o'clock in the morning. And oh. That's exactly when my heart palpitations were happening. So after a process of elimination, I became aware of the truth that it was alcohol that was exasperating my sleep apnea because the alcohol relaxes the muscles to such a point where the sleep apnea gets worse. Mm-hmm. And the reason why my heart palpitation was happening is because it was trying to get blood into my brain <clears throat> because I wasn't breathing. Mm-hmm. So the consequence of that is a stroke or a heart attack, since I want neither. At that moment, I became aware of the truth, that this is harming me. Mm -hmm. So I let go of it. Uh, Right there, that was the last time I had a drink. And it was the same discipline I used for running that I used for no longer drinking. Mind you, I I don't have the disease. I let go because of the choice. I, I, I still have the sleep back. Mm-hmm. And that's the Russian roulette. But I began to apply the lessons that I've learned throughout the tradition in a, in a way that's practical. And it's been helping my life. You know, I've lost 20 pounds. Uh, yes, last night I ran 17 miles. Wow. And that's a big difference from one song. <laughs> in, uh, in December. So. Wow. I, I'm not being able to run two miles in four years. I'm, I'm, I'm about to get my 
fourth marathon. That's amazing. That's great. Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah. <clears throat> it, and it's so great with doing that is because there's so many people who think that they can't because of their age or their circumstances, and it's just it's a mindset to change it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, t- today we lost an angel um, in the running community. Um, I'm sorry. Well, it's it's uh, she was 93 years old. Wow. And she started running at the age of 75 marathons, and she ran a marathon every year, every every year. And my first ever marathon was just the Rock and Roll San Diego Marathon in 2015. Uh huh. She ran it, and. Uh, she had broken that day she broke the record of being the oldest person to finish a race at 92 at, at being 92 years old with eight months in wow so and then we heard her story and i got I, when i was on the race I, I i passed her and i congratulated her and you know she's such a strong inspiration and uh, she just she started at 75 years like so that, like you said you know we don't have we have our excuses in our mind but they're only excuses until we we stop believing them once we we no longer believe them they stop being that hurdle that that roadblock you know that's the uh, i was saying before i love crossing thresholds that my mind says i couldn't cross mm-hmm. running allowed me to do that yeah. but translate that oh, her name is harriet thompson she was the oldest, but she she died at ninety four. That's that's her right there. Aww, oh, that's great. That's phenomenal. <laughs> that's the picture from that very first marathon. Wow. And, uh, she was ninety four years old, but it taught us exactly that that if we say I'm seventy five years old, then I can't run a race because I'm seventy five years. Harriet just proved us wrong. Right. right? <laughs> and, when, and when I ran, when I the first time I crossed five miles in my running, my mind said. That's the threshold. What else can I do? Yeah. And what I like about this is that translate that to anything in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it'll change your life forever. Yeah. Like crossing thresholds that the mindset couldn't be crossed. And it's a mind that believes the self doubt, believes those ideas. Then for as long as we believe them, they will be an obstacle. But here's the thing. The truth exists whether you believe it or not. It exists with or without me. That's the thing about truth. But a belief only exists for as long as you say yes to it. As soon as you change that yes to a no, it ceases to exist, mm-hmm. which means it's an illusion. So those beliefs that we think that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy of it, that will make them true for as long as we say yes to it, because mm-hmm. we believe it. Right, mm-hmm. absolutely. When I remember starting, I had the same bouts, you know, that pinched nerve that I had that injured me. For the longest time, I really thought that was a, a hindrance. And same thing for like, ah, oh, well, uh, that food or the drink or whatever. The easiest thing to let go of something is when we no longer want it in our life. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And that's what makes it easy. In yeah. that moment of clarity, we have an action. You see, a moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. Mm-hmm. You know, a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. And for as long as we're alive, anything is possible, including changing a no to a yes or changing a yes to a no. It's all up to us and what we decide to do and create. Love it's it. It's so true. And I think there's just so many people that <clears throat> they they allow that 
or see that lesson it becomes a belief that they say yes to for so long and then they and, the, and it can be scary though to say yes to that first action step for no matter what it is so any advice to those people that are out there that are like even if it's just something it's like where do they start like where would you recommend that they start just to taking something that start to say no to their their beliefs because like for you right it can come from anything it could be the, it was the nerve at first and then it you know believing it was the nerve then it was the ankle and then there was probably a lot of things right, that right. you recognize being able to answer this question what do you want out of life mm. nobody gets to answer that but you yeah i remember when i was 28 and i was working in the film industry and i was working like i had gotten into a, a crew that where i was working consistently and then I asked myself, well, what do I want my 30s to look like? Well, I want to be a father. Well, what kind of father? Because anyone can be a father. What kind of father are you want? Well, I want to be the one that's there. I want to be that kind of... So I decided to let go of the film industry because after that point, every job I had was my last gig. That's the thing about mm. the film industry. Even my, my, my friends who are the very top, every project could be their last project. So and you... you your, your shortest days are 14 hour days those are your short day, shortest yeah. days so to be a father in that kind of circumstance and the kind of father I wanted to be I decided to let go of it and it was around that time where I was making my whole life decisions I was actually putting into practice everything I was learning what do I want my next 5 years to look like what do I want my next 10 years to look like you know for example when I had the heart palpitations a year ago, I didn't have my usual excuses that I'm in my teens or 20s, even 30s. I'm 40 years old, I'm in the zone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and it's, this is for real. So do I want to continue with this or do I want to make a change? And I made a change because I was honest with myself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. Part of our problems that we work with, with domestic for agreements is that we are so used to domestication that we'll corrupt all of it and we begin to lose our trust in ourselves that's what domestication is the main problem that the four agreements faces is conditional love which is the result that domestication has domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual if you live up to expectation you get the reward and if you don't live up to expectation you get the punishment and since we are emotional beings that reward feels like acceptance and the punishment feels like rejection. So we create all these goals. It says it has to be this way. It has to live up to this thing. We're all, always chasing this elusive carrot. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that it's it's all an illusion. It's, it's just someone tried to motivate us with conditional love, with their acceptance, with conditional I love you if. And somewhere along the line, we lost confidence in our yes and our no because what happens if I get it wrong? What what happens if I get it right? And all these things, and we forget that we're living life. So, in those moments of being honest, what do I want my life to look like? Is it going to be an, a result-driven life, or is it going to be a journey life? You know, because for me, running a marathon, you don't run it that Sunday, on December third. You run it. 18 months or mm-hmm. in my case four years <laughs> and it's the journey yeah. uh-huh. so if you're going to love yourself only if you qualify for Boston and which is to run a marathon in three hours and 
15 minutes and you don't accomplish that then you're gonna reject yourself you lazy right. and then you're gonna break your brain until you right. do but you only find that success for that little bit because as soon as you accomplish it you just uh, you just up the ante but what if you enjoy the whole journey what if you enjoy waking up and listening to your body say today i'll run it at pace today i'm going to take it slow but i'm going to cover the distance and i have a little bit of an ankle injury i'm gonna i'm gonna change my stride to accommodate it to actually be physically present and enjoy this moment yeah because all of a sudden it's not about the end results it's about the journeys the end result is just the excuse to do something we love to do mm-hmm. and that's how we answer the question what do i enjoy doing my father saw being a medical doctor as a surgeon being in a in a, in a, in a treadmill it's just same thing symptom after symptom after symptom and never finding that root cause mm. and he wanted that root so he changed it in a very dramatic way he changed it cost him his marriage at first but now that he's remarried to, to, to my mom they, they've been married three times my mom and my dad now they're married you know, the, the longest that they've gone through it but uh, they've been married to each other three times I love it no three <laughs> but, the, but the, the last three the last different. time I got married was as, as friends and my oh, father says you know you're the, you're, you went through all this with me and uh, I want to take care of you and they they did it out of friendship. They, wow. they, they wanted my my dad wanted to share that with her. They they love each other not romantically, but they uh-huh. love each other. So that's how they they got together again to help each other out. Because I but, uh, to me that's what love is. I know that you had talked about seeing your parents in different lights now, like different stages of their life. Like you look at them differently, and your relationship has changed with them. Also, I think that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, it's. Here's the thing about parenting, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> we're doing the best with what we've got. Uh-huh. And I'm able to relate to my parents because I see them as my peers. Mm-hmm. You know, you take off the mask of father and mother and you see the human beings of two people who are doing the very best with what they've got. They're, they're adjusting to life at this new stage in life. They're adjusting to try to be parents to a 41-year-old, 39-year-old and a, and a 32-year-old. Mm-hmm grandkids and they're trying to figure it out a way you know that's the thing about being a parent as soon as you get used to being a parent of a one year they turn two right they turn four they turn seven every time making everything you know irrelevant because the individual has <laughs> and then they get so, their 30s and 40s and <laughs> they know everything that's going to be the truth throughout our life and not just with parenting but with romance with all these things mm-hmm. we get to, to our truths mm-hmm. right we go back to that question what do i want this relationship to be like what do i want my life to be like and the beautiful thing is that nobody gets to answer that but you and in your, if you're in a relationship well how wonderful it is that we're both alive to make these decisions together we're co-creating it together nice yeah nice and to be able to revisit and give yourself the time and space to revisit those conversations and have those be open and honest with where people are at at that time as well. Exactly, which which requires the willingness to see them for who they are. And that's the thing, you can't give what you do not have. Right. If you can't see yourself for who you are, there's no way you can ever see anyone else. 
Right. Yeah. You start with yourself. <clears throat> right. You start seeing who I am, what I am. You start regaining that confidence that you might have lost somewhere during your domestication. You begin to practice. You start seeing the strengths of your own choices. And in those choices, you start gaining faith in yourself, confidence in yourself. And then you have a desire to, well, what, what, what do I want my life to be like? What do I want to engage? What do I want to create? The beautiful thing about being alive is that I'm alive to heal whatever wound prevents me from living that life. If there is a wound between you and I, we are both alive to heal it. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the beauty of it. You know, to me, that's the essence of the total tradition. It's not about reaching a certain level of enlightenment. It's about how I use it to heal every relationship that I'm in, especially my own. Yeah, that's, a, that's such that's a great. huge relationship, too. You got to be with yourself 24 7. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm constant in every relationship that I am in. If I have conditional love for myself, then I've got nothing but conditional love to get. Mm-hmm. But I begin to heal myself, and I begin to do that work on me. And all of my relationships will benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And where-